0: Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to James chapter 1, James 1. We're continuing in our sermon series in James this morning. And uh, to set up the sermon this morning, I'd like for for us to watch a clip that was on CBS this morning about Maureen O'Connor, the former mayor of San Diego. Let's watch. Maureen O'Connor was a beloved former mayor of San Diego, but
1: O'Connor's life took a stunning turn after it was revealed that she gambled away a fortune. Prosecutors believe she won and lost more than $1 billion playing video poker. O'Connor sat down with our Bill Whitaker to explain what she thinks led to the addiction that has left her bankrupt. What's the worst of it for you? I couldn't do it in private. Very public. If I had my wish, Wished it would be Gamblers Anonymous, not here's Maureen's story. Maureen O'Connor says her story plays out in two acts. Maureen one was mayor of San Diego. Her second act is unfolding in national headlines, a tawdry tale of gambling and lost fortunes. The widow of Robert Peterson, the founder of the West Coast fast food chain Jack in the Box, she inherited as much as $50 million, say federal prosecutors. I used some of that fortune to help people, and then some of that fortune, when I started to become mooring too went into uh, an addiction of gambling. You lost it. Yes, I lost a fortune, and I'm for that. I'm sorry. Her game of choice, video poker. She was such a big spender. Casinos in San Diego and Las Vegas would lavish her with gifts to keep her coming. She would have come anyway. Uh, it was electronic heroin. You know, the more you did, the more you needed, and the more it wasn't satisfied. How much would you lose in a day? I could lose more than 100000 in a day. In one day? Yes. Increasingly desperate, she started to sell off properties to raise millions more, including a house in this exclusive beach community in La Jolla, right by neighbor Mitt Romney. And only after all that was done did she then go and raid A PRIVATE FOUNDATION OF OVER $2 MILLION. SHE TOOK THE MONEY FROM HER HUSBAND'S CHARITY. SHE CALLED IT A LOAN TO BE PAID BACK. FEDERAL PROSECUTOR PHILIP HALPERN CALLED IT MONEY LAUNDERING AND SAYS SHE WON AND LOST A STAGGERING AMOUNT. WE'RE TALKING ABOUT BILLIONS WITH A B. IT'S NOT AGAINST THE LAW TO BANKRUPT YOURSELF. THE VIOLATION WAS THAT SHE RAIDED THAT CHARITY OF $2 MILLION. FOR O'CONNOR, NOW penniless, IT'S A PUBLIC HUMILIATION that I never meant to hurt the city of the You
0: know, when we watch that clip, our hearts go out to her. As we see her asking the question, how in the world did I get here in life? You know, as pastors, we often hear the words, I don't know how I got into this mess, but And what's interesting, I think, about her story, other than the fact that she gambled away a billion dollars, a billion dollars, which meant that she had to have been a pretty good gambler and won a lot over the course of her lifetime, of course, she lost it, is that she goes on in the interview to blame her gambling addiction on a medical condition. Evidently, she had been diagnosed with a tumor. And, you know, that may have been a contributing factor. But her gambling addiction had been going on for decades. And yet she blamed her problem on something else. Now, before we cast stones at her, the truth is that she's a good example, I think, of how none of us like to take the blame for our sin. We'll do almost anything to escape blame. We blame others. My kids, they they blame each other. They blame their brother and their sister. We blame our spouses. We blame our circumstances. We blame the devil. And we can even blame God himself. You know, D.A. Carson, who is a professor at Trinity in Chicago, where Keith and Charles and I went to seminary, tells this story, and I'll never forget this, uh, of a pastor in England who, as a young man, was a very gifted preacher. God was using his preaching to draw people into the kingdom. His church was growing, but he ended up committing adultery and was forced to resign. He moved to Canada, took, to, took a church there, and The same thing happened, and then finally, he wound up pastoring a church in the Chicago area near Trinity, and you guessed it, he was fired after committing adultery again. And I tell you that story because I think it says a lot about how churches often don't do a very good job of vetting pastors, but he said this after being confronted with what he had done, he said, you know, God says He never allows us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And I want to tell you, that's not true. He's to blame. It's His fault. Well, James this morning wants us, I think, to understand who's responsible for sin. He doesn't want us to be deceived. See, James in verses 13 through 18 tells us who's responsible. And how sin works in our lives. And in doing so, I think he gives us some very valuable insights here on how to fight sin and handle temptation. So let's look at these verses. We pick it up with verse 13. James writes this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. we will stop right there. Now, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks... You know that up to this point, James, in his letter, has been talking about trials and how God sovereignly brings trials into our lives to mature us, to to make us the kind of people that God wants us to be. But now, beginning in verse 13, it seems like kind of out of the blue, he switches gears on us here to talk about temptation. But that's not quite true. There's a connection between trials and temptation. In fact, in the Greek, it's the same word. And context determines how you translate it. At the end of the day, I think what James, though, wants us to understand here is that every trial that God brings into our lives can become a temptation to sin. If we don't handle the trial well. See, the reality is, is not all people become mature through trials. We know that. Some people allow trials to make them bitter at life. Financial difficulty can become a temptation to question God's sovereign care for us. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us and even cause us to walk away from Him. Every trial that God brings in our lives is an opportunity for great growth. And because we know that, James, remember, says we can count it all joy when we go through various trials. But every trial can also lead us to sin. And what James wants us to be very clear on is that God sovereignly brings trials in our lives to mature us. But if we find that that trial, that test leads us to sin, it's not God who is tempting us. That comes from within. That comes from our own desires, our own sinful natures, as we're going to see this morning. God tests us through hardships, but He never, never, never tempts us to sin. He never, ever does that. And I know some of you are out there thinking, yeah, what about the Lord's Prayer? You know, right? In the Lord's Prayer, we pray what? God, lead us not into temptation. And I think when we pray that, what we're praying to God, what we're asking God to do is to keep us from evil. But you see, God never tempts us to sin in a sense to destroy our faith. And so what do we learn here about the nature of sin and temptation? Well, James begins by telling us the source of it. Notice, first of all, he says there in verse 13, when tempted, not if tempted. See, just as sure as we're breathing, you and I will face temptation. We all struggle with it. There's a temptation to sexual immorality. There's a temptation to envy others. You know, wishing that you had someone else's life instead of your own. There's the temptation to pride or to lie. There's the temptation to despair when you're maybe facing some difficult circumstances in life because you're not believing that God is sovereign and He's working all things for your good. See, temptation takes many forms. But not only that, notice James says that temptation begins with our desires. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, catch this, by his own evil desire. Now let me just say that not all of our desires are evil, but they all have the capacity to For evil. And and so, for example, the desire for food, which is good, a good desire, has the capacity for gluttony. The desire for sex in marriage has the capacity for fulfillment in sex outside of marriage. But James says, don't miss this. The source of all evil comes from our own hearts. Our own evil desires. And yet we often make excuses and we blame our sin, right, on other things. In fact, it's been that way from the beginning. Remember from the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, after the fall, both Adam and Eve tried to pass the buck. God came to Adam and said, what in the world happened? And Adam said this, you know, I, I was doing just fine. I, I, was, I fell into this deep sleep, and I woke up this next morning missing a rib, and, and there's this woman. I, I'm married. And Adam says this, he says, this woman that you gave me, she caused me to eat the apple. Husbands have been blaming wives ever since, haven't they? God comes to Eve and says to her, what in the world happened? And she says this, the the, the devil made me do it. And we play that very same blame game today. We blame Satan. We blame our circumstances. You know, if if work wasn't so hard, I, I wouldn't be so grouchy when I get home. If they didn't just have Krispy Kreme donuts in the break room, I wouldn't give in. We blame our parents for the way they raised us. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not saying that our home environment doesn't have an effect on us. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're the ones that are responsible for our lives. Or we even blame God. You know, if he hadn't given me such a big mouth or, or such a hot temper or such a strong sexual drive, I wouldn't find myself kind of constantly battling temptation and more often than not giving into it. But James says, no, 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 no. Don't be deceived. God doesn't tempt anyone, God, by his nature, Is holy. He can't be tempted by evil. Evil has no sway. It has no attraction to him, nor does he tempt anyone. Let me ask you a question Why do we have this tendency to play the blame game? Well, I think it's because we don't like taking responsibility for our lives. In a sense, we would rather be the victims. You know, my oldest son, Jack, uh, was pitching in a baseball game a few years ago, and I've asked, I asked him if permission if I could tell this story, but uh, his team was playing against an older team, and Jack was pitching that day, and in the first inning, uh, he gave up eight runs and only got two outs. And so he motioned for me. I was an assistant coach on his team at that time. And so he motioned for me to to come out to the mound and to talk to him. And and so I did. And when I got out there, I was trying to calm him down. I said, Jack, you know, you're doing fine. said something like, you know, I'm really hungry. wish I had a hot dog right now. I was trying to get him to relax. But he said this to me, and I will never forget his words. He said, Dad, you're the one that's to blame for this. And you're embarrassing me. And I thought, I'm embarrassing you. You're the one who's embarrassing are you? Are you kidding? You can't get anybody out. <laughs> and, and if you had... I didn't say that. But, but if, if, if you had been a fan there in the stands that day, watching this whole scene, you would have seen a father and his son just in this dysfunctional relationship as we're blaming one another. You know... One of the things that I've been trying to teach my kids is if you always play the blame game in life, that won't serve you well when you get older, right? You know, the blame game never works when you're working for some company and you're always blaming other people for your faults, right? The blame game doesn't serve us well when we get married. And we can't own up to our own sin and just say, I blew it and humble ourselves before our spouses and ask for forgiveness. And I don't think the blame game plays very well with God either. See, God wants us to take responsibility when it comes to our sin. He wants us to take responsibility. Now, James here, he knows that Satan and the world tempts us. In fact, later on, we're going to see in the book of James, he's going to tell us what that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. James knows that. He knows that the devil plays a a role, but I think he's mainly concerned here with our own hearts, our own desires. The, The problem isn't so much the tempter on the outside, but it's the traitor within. We sin because we want to sin. We sin because we want to sin. But James goes on to tell us how sin progresses, how sin works in our lives. And I think this is so interesting. He starts with our own evil desires, but then in verse 14, he says this, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed, or lured away and enticed. See, James here uses a fishing metaphor to describe how temptation works in our lives. You know, when I was a kid, my my dad would take me fishing for catfish, one of my favorite memories as a kid. In fact, my, my grandfather was one of those guys who would wade into streams and he would stick his... His, his arm into a log. And of course, the catfish would, would grab onto it. And uh, I think there's actually a TV show about that now called Mudcats. My, my grandfather was a little ahead of his time. But uh, one of the things that my dad taught me is that catfish like this stuff called stink bait. Okay? Uh, nasty, nasty stuff. And, and he was a little bit old school. And so even as a young kid, he would make me He would make me bait my own hook, even though it it smelled terrible. But he taught me, you see, that it's important to choose the right kind of bait for the fish you're after. You know, you're not generally going to catch bass on catfish bait. And the point is, is that the temptations that come to us in our lives are tailor-made, I think, by the evil one. To match our desires. See, not everyone is tempted in the same way by the same things, right? I can't ever imagine making the royals an idol in my life, okay? I can't ever imagine you neglecting my, my family, neglecting my wife and my kids because I'm just obsessed with the royals and I'm stealing tickets to to get into the ballpark now i might become obsessed with work and overwork and neglect my family because of that and i know the royals illustration it's a trivial illustration but see satan knows where we're most vulnerable he knows the bait that we like best And here's what goes on in our minds when we see this bait dangling there in front of us. I think that you'll recognize these from your own experience. Satan comes to us and he says, God will forgive you. God will forgive you. In other words, he uses the grace of God to lead us into sin. Satan says, this is no big deal. It won't matter much. He masks sin's ugliness and the effect that it will have on our souls and in our relationships with others. Satan says this, you're different. You know, you have unique pressures and circumstances. Gosh, you need a break. Satan comes to us and he says, "What? just this once, just this once. But once we give in the pull of temptation, we feel the next time is much greater. Sin, if we're honest, always breeds more and more sin. Satan comes to us and he says, you know that you can't say no. See, he weakens us by telling us that what we're eventually going to give in anyway. And what he's doing is he's lying to us. Because if we're Christians, what we're new creatures in Christ. We have a new nature. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And therefore, we can say no to temptation. We can say no to sin. Not only that, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his little booklet called Temptation, maybe the best description of temptation found anywhere outside of the Bible, he he writes these words. Look with me. He says, With irresistible power. Desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us and we seek all of our joy in the creature. And at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan here does not fill us with a hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God and His Word. It's so true, isn't it? When we're tempted, in that moment before we sin, We forget God on our best days, on our best days. Sometimes we sin and we we don't forget God. And we believe what the lie that sin is more satisfying than obeying God and His will for our lives. But what we forget is that there's a hook hidden beneath the bait that's going to drag us away and take us where we don't want to go. There's always a hook hidden in the bait. But James doesn't stop there. He goes on. He goes on to tell us the course of temptation. In other words, where sin leads us. He says this in verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown... Gives birth to death. See, James here switches metaphors on us. He uses the language now of childbirth. And he says evil desires give birth to sin. And then sin gives birth to death. And the idea here is that sin grows rapidly. Just as an embryo grows to maturity. And when it's full grown... It doesn't give birth to life, but it gives birth to death. It's a horrific image, I know. And I won't spend time dwelling on it, but I think that James here is warning us. He's warning us to take sin seriously. So we tend to think of sin as just kind of a a single act, but we don't think much about the consequences. I'm sure that, that James has David, King David, in mind as he writes these words. Remember King David? He sees Bathsheba. He wants her. He ends up committing adultery with her, gets her pregnant. And then he has Uriah, her husband, killed. And even though David was forgiven, he was a child of God, he was a man after God's own heart, his sin, the consequences of his sin, stayed with him all of his life. It stayed with him all of his life. See, sin grows, and when it matures, it always leads to death. Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And I think there he's talking about eternal death. But here, James wants us to see other ways it works out in our lives. Sin always leads to some sort of death. Maybe it's physical death. Maybe it's relational death. You know, a husband who views pornography always, always, Hurts his relationship with his wife. Don't be deceived. All of us in this room, we know people whose lives have been destroyed by sin, right? People come to my mind right now. And I want to help you to discern the process that maybe sin is having in your life right now. Let me just give you a very common example. Let's take anger as an example. Let's say that someone hurts your feelings. But but then what? You begin to become angry, and you begin to make judgments about them. And finally, that embryo, when it's full grown, you become bitter and angry, and you can't stop thinking about that person. Right? Right? That's what happens. And now that person, in a sense, begins to control you. Don't you see how sin kind of works its way out in our lives? It always leads to death. And I could go on with example after example after example. And so we say things like, well, I've got some issues. No sin is out to kill you. Sin is out to kill you. We say, well, it's just a little thing, no big deal. No, sin is going to grow up. Sin will always take us farther than we want to go and keep us there longer than we want to stay. We say, well, you know, I'll, I'll kind of deal with it then. But that's often hard to do. Make no mistake, we choose sin, But we can get so far down the road that sin begins to, to choose us. Sin begins to choose us. And I think that's why theologian John Owen said these words. He said, be killing sin. Be dealing with sin in your life or it will be killing you. So if we don't, if we left sin go unchecked, it always brings death. Death here is the last word. And so that's the bad news. Okay, now that we're all thoroughly depressed, okay, what's the good news? What's the answer? How do we battle temptation? And I use that word battle on purpose because I think that we need to have a wartime mindset against it. How do we handle temptation? Well, the Bible tells us that there are many things we can do. For example, it, it tells us that we need to flee when temptation comes, if that's possible. We need to flee when temptation comes, if that is at all possible. Remember, the, when the wife of Potiphar grabbed Joseph to have sex with him, he fled. He got out of that situation because he knew that he was vulnerable. I think it's also important that we memorize scriptures that deal with the areas we struggle with. The psalmist writes these words. He says, surely I I have hidden my word in in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I think it's also important to have relationships with other believers. People that you can trust. Who you can be very open to with about your life and what's going on and the sins that you struggle with, and you know that that person will pray for you and encourage you. Now, I I get it. I'm not naive. I know that none of these are a magic bullet. I get that. But, But I think they help in our battle against sin. But I think also what James, you see, is telling us here in this passage today is that we need to do two things. Two things. First of all, we need to know how the temptation and sin cycle works in our lives. That's why he slowed this way down for us using different metaphors so we can see how sin works. And he's telling us that in the midst of temptation, we need to stop and we need to remind ourselves That there's always a hook hidden beneath the bait. In the midst of temptation, we need to stop and remind ourselves. There's always a hook hidden in the bait that's going to take us where we don't want to go. We need to remember that. We need to remember James is warning here to us. But then secondly, and I think this is just important, maybe more important, we need to remember the goodness of God. In the midst of temptation, when we're tempted, we need to remember the goodness of God. James goes on in, in, in verse 16, he says this, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about what he had said before about sin. But don't be deceived about this, my dear brothers. He says this, every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above. See, willpower alone won't help us in our battle against sin. It won't. It won't. No, we have to remember, as James says, the goodness of God. To see that He's more satisfying than sin and that following Him, obeying Him is always for our good. The truth is, is if we're ever going to gain victory over some sin that in our lives that we're struggling with, we have to have our hearts captured by something more beautiful. We have to have our hearts captured by something more beautiful. You know, Thomas Chalmers The great Scottish preacher said this the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it something even more beautiful. It's so true. And I think the place where we see God's beauty and his goodness to us the best is the cross, it's at the cross. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, what Christ Jesus died for us. The truth is, is if God would give his son to us for sinners like this, us, why in the world would we ever doubt his goodness? Why in the world would we ever doubt that following him is for our good? This morning, if you're like me, as we think about our sins, I think we need to be reminded again of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We need to be reminded of that. But we also need God to give us eyes afresh to see His beauty, to see again that He's the bread of life that satisfies our souls, so that we would want Him. So that we would prefer Him to sin. You know, one of the reasons why we take the Lord's Supper on a continual basis here is because it just simply reminds us of these truths. That in Christ, there's no condemnation. It reminds us of the truth that He's the bread of life that satisfies our souls on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took some bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said this is my body given for you take and eat the same way he took some wine and he poured it out into a cup and he said this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you take and drink. This morning, if you're believing the gospel, if you're looking to Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, and if you're repenting of your sin, okay, we, let's, let's be honest here. We all get knocked down by sin, right? We're all in that boat. But the key is, Are you repenting? Are you getting back up? Are you confessing your sin? Are you allowing your sin to drive you back to Christ? If you're doing that, then Jesus invites you to come and to take part in this meal. As usual, there'll be five aisles and 13 stools right down here in front and some stools right there in the back. And whenever you're ready... You just simply come forward and you tear off a piece of the bread and you can dip it into the wine that'll be in the goblet in our hand or you can dip it in the grape juice that'll be in front of us on the stool. You don't need to say anything to us, but we'll say a a word of encouragement to you to help you to continue to believe the promises of the gospel. Also, there's some baskets right up here on stage with white cloths in them and all of the money that's given during communion. will go to help people with their physical needs here in our church as well as in our community. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we're reminded again that we are great sinners, but we have an even greater Savior. Lord, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, I pray this morning that you give us grace, that you would give us eyes afresh to see the beauty of Christ so that we would want him more than we want sin. We thank you for your word. Thank you for our time of worship this morning. Give us grace, Lord, to deal with the sins in our lives that you have your finger on. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.